Okay, friends. Um, uh, first thing, uh, you should never... Be- I-, I was always told you should never begin a talk with an apology, but I'm going to give an apology. <laughs> um, that is, I hope you'll pardon me uh, this morning. Um, I am a preacher by gifting, and preachers are meant to talk about their Lord and point uh, people toward Him. But today I'm going to tell you a bit about myself. Um, and, uh, but I think I do that because I think it's helpful. Uh, just a bit about myself. I grew up in a Christian family. Um, my parents were medical missionaries uh, in the South Pacific. I was quite an outgoing child, uh, lots of friends, good at certain sports, reasonably fit and athletic, even though small of stature, and that hasn't changed. <laughs> um, then at 11, uh, my family set off, sent me off to boarding school in Melbourne. And, uh, but before they did, we had an extended holiday in Australia. Now, because I grew up in Papua New Guinea, we never had television in Papua New Guinea. Um, and I spent the holidays watching television and eating fattening Aussie food. <laughs> um, by the time I arrived at boarding school, I was quite overweight. I was the smallest boy in the boarding school, and I was not Aussie. Um, and I was bullied mercilessly, um, and I became quite introverted. Uh, then my parents moved from Papua New Guinea to Australia, and I became a day boy at the school rather than a boarder, which meant I lost all my friends overnight. Uh, two years after that, my family moved again, this time from Melbourne, uh, to Sydney, and I lost all my friends again. Um, And I kept being bullied. And I withdrew into a world of books and few relationships. Um, However, in my final year of school, I craved relationships. Um, I got in, for for that reason, I got in with the wrong group of young men. I also started to drive cars. I had a serious car accident. Uh, I put two people in hospital, seriously injured. Uh, I felt incredibly guilty. I couldn't deal with the guilt. I withdrew from most friendships. Um, My sister was a Christian. She invited me to church. I went to a Sunday school picnic. It was the day before my 18th birthday. And I saw that these Christian people had something I didn't have. Um, And so I went home that night. I knew what to do because I'd been reared Christianly. Um, And I confessed my sins and I asked, God to forgive me in Jesus. I woke up on my birthday a different person. Uh, it, was a, it was a radical conversion. Um, and I soon realized, more by accident than anything else, uh, I realized that God had given me a gift of speaking. The leader of the fellowship group, unannounced one Sunday night, said to me, now Andrew's going to stand up and tell us how he became Christian. <laughs> I had had no warning Uh, And I did it, and I realized that I could do it. Um, So I decided, uh, with encouragement of friends and so on, to pursue Christian ministry. Uh, It was in in my first week, in my first year of theological college, uh, that I had met Heather at a beach mission thing that she explained earlier on. Uh, On the way home from college, I walked on a shortcut way to the railway station to take a, to get home. 
and uh, this digger walked out about 100 metres ahead of me, which I recognised to be Heather, and found she lived in a house of three other women. So a house for a single 18-year-old, or 20-year-old as I was then, uh, with four women in it, was quite an attractive option since I was living in single quarters with just men. <laughs> and uh, so uh, we decided we loved each other, and by the time I was 23, we were married and I was an ordained minister in the Anglican Church in Sydney. I was, for the first four years of my ordained ministry, the youngest Anglican clergyman in Sydney. Um, anyway, I want you to now travel 20 years with me into our history. In those 20 years, lots of things happened. Uh, my father left my mother. My mother became very significantly clinically depressed. Um, she became suicidal. Um, I remember she landed in hospital on a respirator and we did not know if she'd last through the night. Um, uh, we, uh, we had two children. I was involved in student ministry and found that uh, I was quite gifted in it. Uh, we did that for seven or eight years. We then moved to Perth, where I became the lead pastor of an Anglican church in Perth that was attached to student ministry. I had always had some hesitations as to whether I'd be a decent Anglican minister. I finally found myself as, uh, uh, we called them in Perth rectors, but it meant the senior minister of an Anglican church. And at first all went well. Uh, off and on during the previous 15 to 20 years, I noticed that sometimes my introspection would get on top of me and that I'd feel down, now I began to feel down all the time. Um, even though the ministry was thriving, the church was doing well, I was agitated, down, increasingly introspective, feeling inadequate. I began to get some physical signs that all was not well, and uh, um, the crunch came when we went to a for a week's holiday fishing. We went to this place that's about a thousand kilometres north of Perth. Uh, we camped in tents because we loved camping. It was one way of getting away from everything. Uh, we camped in tents about from here to the wall back there from fishing. <laughs> we used to have to walk down there, cast a, and they were they were good good fish. <laughs> um, and we spent a week with our children doing this. And after a week, I felt worse than I had before I started. <laughs> uh, I would be moody, introspective, not as good with the family. And I felt colourless, that life was colourless and dark. Um, do you remember those old black and white British movies set in London where they would be clouded over black and white you know, the, the, the London fog would move in. Uh, I felt like that. <laughs> and so I lived in that sort of world. Anyway, my doctor were, um, was a member of the congregation and I made an appointment to see him. It was the year I turned 40. And I said to my doctor these very words. I said, Rob, I've been feeling like this. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Tell me, is this just life after 40? <laughs> <laughs> Or is something wrong? <laughs> Rob asked me some questions and then he said to me, Andrew, I think you're depressed. 
um, I think that we need to do a few things. First, I need to get you on some medication that will relieve some of, relieve some of your symptoms. Then we need to get you to see a psychiatrist to verify my diagnosis and to advise as to what you need. Um, at the same time, you and I need to work through what's causing the depression and some ways to help you grapple with it and work through it. Anyway, uh, being reader, I shut myself up in the med medical library at the University of Western Australia for a few days and I read everything I could on depression. <laughs> Um, I also realised that ministry was a significant part of the depression. And so I began to wonder if I could continue in Christian ministry. Um, Heather was on a good salary, and so we agreed that I would take a year out of ministry and see if I could call, uh, sort myself out. I went on antidepressants. I gave the church a year's notice, said in a year's time I will be stopping. Uh, I got psychiatric advice. The, the psychiatrist told me that depression could have uh, both psychological and chemical elements um, and that that differed with each person. Uh, because of my family history, he said, look, it's probably for you largely chemical rather than psychological. There's family history. That's probably what it, what it is. Uh, anyway, the year off... Uh, so I lasted through that year, and the year off was great. I did all sorts of things to try and handle the depression. I began running, um, because uh, running gives you natural endorphins and so on, and uh, so that offset some of the depression. Uh, I stopped drinking, uh, because alcohol is also a depressant. Uh, I became a house... But anyway, when we took the year off, I became a house husband, and I spent a lot of time reading, praying, and writing. And with some psychological help, I began to work through some of the psychological issues and how to handle them. Uh, during that time, I met lots of people in ministry who suffer from depression. Many pastors do. And they came to me and they said, Andrew, me too, but I've never been willing or able to go public like you. Um, but I'm glad you have. Uh, after the year, I began to, we began to think that some forms of ministry uh, might be okay. So we began to pursue them. For example, you might think this is very strange, but it makes a lot of sense. We began to church plant while I worked full time in IT. Now, I, the IT work I was doing, I was a network and systems engineer um, and a consultant in it. Uh, that, mean, that meant I was problem solving during the week. And uh, the great thing about IT is it's all about ones and zeros in the end. <laughs> that means there's a logical conclusion if you keep working at a problem. Um, and for me, it's, and, but... Let me tell you, people are not ones and zeros. Uh, they're very different. Um, but when I worked in IT, I could solve a problem and I could go home and feel good. If you solve a problem with a person, you may feel good about it, but sometimes the problem doesn't remove, re remain solved for very long. So I found the balance between the two quite good. Um, so an IT-related um, workplace, 
about church planting, which had its creative side, uh, but also was people-oriented and gospel-oriented, and those were really good things for me. Um, that was uh, probably 17 or so years ago now uh, that I did that. I still suffer occasionally from bouts of depression. Uh, however, I'm one of the fortunate ones who can survive uh, without ongoing medication, uh, as long as I keep doing certain things, uh, such as exercising well, all those sorts of things. Um, my depression's not severe and it's not largely chemical, but I have friends who are pastors of churches for whom it is very significant and they, they are either on medication all the time or have small breaks from it. Um, so I'm fortunate. Uh, but I have a young Christian relative whose who's med- who's depression is so severe that medication won't even work. Um, the only thing that works for her is electrocardiotherapy, which is an extremely violent form of dealing with depression. Uh, it's a debilitating treatment that has its own downsides. Uh, so there's my story. And uh, I tell you because I'm convinced that too many Christians hide depression and are not afraid to admit it. Um, I'm unembarrassed about it, as you can tell. Uh, it, it is part of who I am as a person made by God. And I therefore believe that God has used it in making me a stronger and more realistic Christian. Um, so what I want to do now is step back a bit and get two different perspectives on depression. Uh, first, I want to tell you about things that I learned from one psychiatrist friend. He told me that there are basically three, times of men- three types of mentally ill people in the world. Um, mad, sad and bad. (laughs) And he said they can be combined. (laughs) Now, let's just think about that. After all, the Bible, I think, tells us about each of those three people. Uh, I've I've written a little book, a little little commentary, uh, a friendly little commentary on 1 and 2 Samuel. Um, And it tells us about each of these people. I want you to think about the books of Samuel, okay? In 1 and 2 Samuel, we find uh, the sad, the bad, and the mad. Let me introduce them to you. David encounters all, the sad himself. You you may think that that's untrue, but if you read the Psalms and you read the Psalms of David, you will find he is quite often a sad man. And he often thinks that this sadness has been going on for some time, and he often struggles with it. Uh, Saul is the mad Okay. Uh, later on in his life, do you remember the spirit of God leaves him and he's, he's assaulted by an evil spirit? I suspect that's one, whatever that means, that part of it means that he was irrational, he was down, he was all those sorts of things. And then there's the bad. His name in the books of Samuel is Doeg the Edomite. Now, I don't know if you know about Doeg. He, he occurs in the book of Psalms and also uh, in the story of 1 and 2 Samuel. Here's the man when David goes to borrows the eats the bread uh, from the temple and borrows and is given the sword of Goliath. That Doeg the Edomite is waiting in the boundary uh, on the edge and hears of this, reports it to Saul, and the the priests that are there 
in this particular place are wiped out. Uh, it's a mass slaughter, and Doeg is behind it. Um, so, there are the three groups. How does David deal with each of these three? That is, the sad, the mad, and the bad. How does he deal with them? Well, himself, as the sad, he does not hide. Uh, he doesn't also expect relief immediately. I want you to listen to Psalm 6. Okay, this is David speaking. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Be merciful to me, God, for I am faint. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord. And deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. No one remembers you when he's dead. Who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping. I drench my couch with tears. This is the psalmist. This is David. Who can say, sing some of the most magnificent psalms and write them. And drench my couch with tears. My eyes eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all of my foes. Can you hear him? This is a man who says, this has been an ongoing thing and I'm anguished. Um, What about Saul? Well, you can read 2 Samuel, uh, the last part, the last half of 2 Samuel, see him. He even ends up throwing swords, not only at David, but his own son. (laughs) Um, uh, he, he acts in a way uh, remember the spirit leaves him and uh, after that he becomes erratic in behaviour um, he, he acts like a madman sometimes what does David do towards him? well he tries to act in a godly manner what happens from 1 Samuel chapter 18 all the way through to 2 Samuel 1, is he tries to act in a godly manner. And the, and the writer of Psalms tells us he does. He makes sure that he treats this man who's bad toward him rightly. He seeks to act in a godly manner. He lets God judge. He waits for God to do his will. What about Doeg? Well, if you want to read about what David says about Doeg, you read Psalm 52 sometime. Because he asks God to judge Doeg, basically. He brings the sinfulness of Doeg to God and he indicates that God will judge him and deal with him. And you can see it in Psalm 52. So that's the psalm after the one where he confesses his sin over Bathsheba. Okay? Now think about Jesus as well. How does Jesus treat those who are unwell? Either psychologically, spiritually, or physically? Well, he heals the sick. He mediates forgiveness. He alleviates the hurt. Do you remember these words? They come from Acts chapter 10, 37 and 38. Uh, It's the apostles talking about the ministry of Jesus and they say this. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. Uh, He he ministers to those people. Uh, From 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, We urge you, brothers, 
admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all, see that no one repays evil, anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good for one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So this is just some perspectives from Scripture. Okay? So now some other, what I would class as wise advice that I've picked up from various places. So here's the wise advice. What we as Christians need to do is to teach a balanced view of mental illness as part of an ongoing education process in our churches. Right? Most Christians are scared to admit depression. Increasing numbers are now, but most Christians are scared to admit depression because they think it has a stigma associated with it. They think it's a Christian equivalent of leprosy. <laughs> that is, that it sort of will distance you from people. They'd never say that, but in one, in one sense they feel as though they're on the edge and they don't want to admit things. So that's the first thing. Teach, we need to teach a balanced view of mental illness. That is, just like people get physically sick, they get mentally sick. That's life. And it happens in the Bible, from the sad, the mad to the bad. Right? Next thing, don't hide depression. Now, I understand that some people need to because of the stigma often associated with it, but I would encourage people not to do it, not to hide it. A third, for the pastors of God's people and for leaders amongst God's people, we need to give education to the people of God. Now, practically for all of us, befriend those who are struggling with depression and other mental illness you often will need to have that friendship to be with multiple people so that no one carries the full weight of responsibility. Because often if you're carrying the full weight, it becomes overwhelming and you need to withdraw. Um, share the load. Make sure that uh, you, you notice the sick and the unwell, whether it be mental or physical, and share the load. Help each other minister to such people. A mark in my view of a good Christian church is that it, it helps people who are mentally ill and without the stigma. Right? And it shares, and I think shares the load. So I'll give you an example. We had a guy um, who was very sick, not, not with depression, but with a mental illness. Uh, in the church I was at in, um, in Perth. And he was overwhelming to look after. And his illness was manic, that is, it went up and down all the time. Okay? Um, and when he was really in a bad way, he was overwhelming to look after. But he kept coming to church. Um, so what, what the young men did in the congregation, because he was a man is they said, we're going to look after him together. They would keep an eye on him. They knew when he stopped taking his medication. They knew then he'd get on the edge. They knew then that he'd get into trouble. They would let the police know, who would then 
put him back into care for a little while, give him, get him back on his medication. They would visit him all the time that he was there. Then they'd keep looking after him when he came out. There's a great example of Christian care for someone. They'd be praying for him, that God would um, heal him, all those sorts of things, but they cared for him. Uh, next, encourage people who are depressed to see a doctor. Medication is a gift from God. No, it's a gift from God. In the end, most of the medication is just chemical. And chemicals are a gift from God. And if they, they can be used to help people, then allow them to be used. It can allow, medication can allow a good perspective. Uh, when people say to me, I'm depressed and I, I'm really fearful about taking medication, I say to them two things. Now, for those of you who are doctors here, I know you, you may not agree with me on this, but, uh, um, but most depression medication, it still seems to me, is a little bit of trial and error. Some works for some, one sort might work for one person, one sort might work for another, and we don't know why some of them work entirely and why they do and don't for certain people. Um, So encourage people to try medication and pray that it works with them, but also say it won't always work. Well, don't tell them that. Let their doctors tell them that. But if their doctors aren't realistic, be realistic with them and help them. Medication is a gift from God, though. Uh, let me tell you, remember the dark clouds of, of London <laughs> and the grey? Heather will tell you, that once I started taking medication, I became much easier to live with. And she says it was like colour began to flood back into my life. Okay, it, it's just, and into our family life. So it can allow you good perspective. And that's what it did for me. And it allowed me to analyse what was going on with me as a person, get some help, work out some other ways of coping with it, all those sorts of things. The next thing is make sure your relationship with someone with depression or mental illness is not always centred on the problem, but that transcends the problem. Okay, one way to do that is to find a shared interest that doesn't have to do with them being depressed. You know, if they, if, if they have, you know, some interest that you share, do it with them. They don't have to talk about illness all the time or whatever, but you can do something together. It may even be sometimes you can find a shared interest that will help with the particular thing. So, for example, you could, no one plays this game much more anymore, but if you do, we're, we're playing squash. Squash is a great game because it just presses all your, <laughs> it builds up. <laughs> The amount, you've got to exercise hard, which then lifts the level of various things in your system and can often give some relief as well. But it might be something else. It might be that they like fishing or I don't know what. Right? Um, find a shared interest and do it with them. Uh, next, help people sort their struggles into categories of sin, suffering and identity. Okay, sin, suffering and identity. Well, those things, identity can be caused by biology, environment, choice, whatever, okay? 
But where there's sin, help them. Help correct them. Help keep them accountable. Right? Where, where there's suffering, be merciful. <laughs> Encourage. Help. Give relief. Where it's identity, help them to work out which of those is caused by biology, which is caused by environment, which is caused by choice, and help them, if you can, to work out how to deal with each of those things. Next, assure that oppressed person of God's love and of your support. Okay, assure that oppressed person of God's love and of your support. Encourage them to read the Psalms regularly. <laughs> because they will find a voice for what they're feeling. It may not be every day, but I reckon about one in every 10 days they will, because they'll find someone, the psalmist, where they have been. It's not one in every 10, it's one in every 20. Right. They'll find a voice. Finally, pray, pray, and pray again. Okay, let me... Uh, uh, I have, I remember the person I mentioned earlier on, who the only thing that will help her with depression is electrocardiotherapy. I asked her for, is there anything that you've read that's been helpful in relation to depression? She suffers from that very severe depression. She said the one book that she's found, so I just recommended, I have not read it, but I, I know she's a solid Christian woman uh, the book that she found has been very helpful is a book by Amy Simpson called Trouble Minds, Mental Illness and the Church's Mission. A Troubled Minds, Mental Illness and the Church's Mission. Now, the last thing I want to do, and then I'll open it up for questions, you can ask what you like, uh, is I want to tell you stories of great depressed Christians. <laughs> Just to show you, I've told you about David already, but I want to show you that there are very significant people who have struggled with this very issue. Number one is Paul the Apostle. Okay, Paul the Apostle. Listen to this. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we might comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we're distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our suffering, so also you share in our comfort. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardship we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Can you hear all of that? Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. They were feeling dead inside. He was feeling dead inside. But this happened so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Isn't that a great line? He, who, he has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. 
by that he means even eternally that will happen. If it doesn't get sorted out in this life, it may in the next, or it will in the next. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favour granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Can you see the toing and froing all the time? And the casting out hope, and in the end the, the conviction that this will be sorted out at the end, if not, not before. Now listen to, uh, let me tell you about some others. Uh, C.S. Lewis, probably modern Christianity, one of modern Christianity's most beloved authors and thinkers. C.S. Lewis is remembered for all those classics, Mere Christianity, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Screwtape Letters. But that renowned defender of the faith is also known for a much more complicated side of life. Famously writing, I have found that nothing is more dangerous to one's own faith than the work of an apologist, <laughs> which he chose to be, defending the faith. That's what an apologist is. And even with all his contributions to contemporary Christianity, Lewis led a somewhat controversial personal life and at times wrestled with the intellectual side of faith. Lewis warned readers of the hazards of relying on intellect particularly apologetics over spirituality, uh, and he wrote this. That is why we apologists take our lives in our hands and can be saved only by falling back continually from the web of our own arguments as from our intellectual counters into the reality, from Christian apologetics into Christ himself. That's why we need another's continual help. Let us pray for each other. Now, if you think... Lewis didn't suffer terribly much. Then you read his A Grief Observed. It is one of the most poignant books I have ever read when he contemplates, when he thinks about and argues with God about the death of his wife. It's profound. Um, Lewis is ultimately remembered for his writings on faith even when it meant putting aside momentary feelings of uncertainty. He says this, Faith in the sense in which I am using the word here is the art of holding on to the things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. That is why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your moods where they are to get off, you can never either be a sound Christian or even a sound atheist. Now, Martin Luther, the great reformer. He's remembered for a much less grand and much more relatable tray, doubt. I love the prayers of Martin Luther. If you get online, you can download them. And I pray one of them in particular almost daily. It is just a great prayer about his own doubt and his own weakness. Um, through his fear of his own sinfulness that it would separate him from God it, he was caused to come to an understanding of justification by faith that you are right with God on the basis of what Christ has done um, but at one point crushing doubt in his mind crept in to such, and it led to such an intense depression that he wrote this for more than a week I was close to the gates of death and hell 
I, trum I trembled in all my members, that is, in all my body parts. Christ was wholly lost. I was shaken by desperation and close to blasphemy of God. Can you hear the man? Grief. Depression. Ultimately, Luther's legacy was one of reform and reliance on grace. He would always come back to grace. But he suffered from moments of doubt about his salvation, calling to God desperately. But I want you to think about all the great preachers you know of. And if I ask a group of Christians, you know, who are some of the standouts? Depending on what background you come from. One of them, for many people, will be Charles Spurgeon, great Baptist preacher of the late 18th century. In his sermon, The Desire of the Soul in Spiritual Darkness, he bluntly claimed this. I think when a man says, I never doubt, it's quite time for us to doubt him. Isn't that a good line? Uh, uh, it's quite time for us to begin to say, Ah, poor soul. I'm afraid you are not on the road at all, for if you were, you'd see so many things in yourself and so much glory in Christ, more than you deserve, that you would be so ashamed of yourself, even as to say it's too good to be true. In another sermon called The Minister's Fainting Fits, this is the sermon, this is the sermon he would give to his young people training for ministry. He explained that even the strongest of believers may face bouts of depression being stripped of the joy brought by faith. And he referred back to Luther about this. And he says these words, the strong are not always vigorous. The wise are not always ready. The brave are not always courageous. And the joyous are not always happy. The life of Luther must suffer to give us a thousand instances and he was by no means of the weaker sort. That is, he wasn't a weak man, but you read him and you'll find out that he was human. His very deathbed, says, says Spurgeon, was not free from tempests and he sobbed himself into his last sleep like a great weary child. Isn't that amazing? Do you know what? He became so depressed at one stage that he locked himself in his house, in his pyjamas, for three months. And his elders had to come to him and to, had to urge him to return to the pulpit. They said, they said to him, now it's, it's been enough. Come back. And he did. Um, toward the end, he writes... The lesson of wisdom is this. Be not dismayed by soul trouble. It's probably his way of talking about depression. Be not dismayed by soul trouble. Cast not away your confidence, for it hath great recompense of reward. That is, it, it will be rewarded. Even if the enemy's foot be on your neck, expect to rise amid and overthrow him. Cast the burden of the present along with the sin of the past and the fear of the future upon the Lord who forsaketh not his saints. 
Because uh, the risk of depression is you think God's left me. Okay, now all I've tried to do today is to give you one, my own experience, two, the experience of the saints, and three, some little bits of advice. And I now am very happy just to open it up for questions and comments and so on. So I give you no solutions. I give you what I think is some wise advice, but no solutions, because I think it is part of life. And for some people, it may be part of their lives for most of their life. But a Christian church needs to do better in caring for them. Much, much better than it's done. It's getting better around the world. But we need to not, stop saying this is not Christian. What I've tried to show you today, by using examples from the Bible, by using examples from history, is that it is part of life. Why? Because the world we meet is a world fraught with sin and will not always reflect what we think is the what life should be like. And if you tell people something's going to be different from that, you are telling them a lie. The world is a world under the influence of the evil one and affected by sinfulness. It's out of plumb. It's not the way that it should be. And so you can expect bad things to happen to good people. Thus it has always been. And that can mean psychologically as well as physically. We know that from Scripture. Okay, so uh, that's enough from me in terms of input. Uh, you may have some questions for me, and I'll do what I can to answer them. Yes? Sure. Okay, so the book is A Grace Disguised. All right, Jerry sits. I don't know of it, so. Okay. Okay, and he's working through it. Okay, thank you. All right, any other any questions, comments? Yes. Yes. Yes, thank you. Yes, a very good, a very good observation. The psalmist uh, expresses all of these things, pours out his heart toward God, but in the end comes to resolution. That is true, except for one psalm, which off the top of my head I can't remember the number. But there's one psalm where there's no resolution. What was it? Eighty-eight. Okay, thank you. I know there's only one, but it's that one. Okay, where he finds no resolution, which means he. He's, he's living with the, with that. Yes. Yep. Yes. Yes. I've forgotten. I've forgotten about Lloyd Jones's book. A spiritual depression is a good one. Yeah. 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 I'm asking you a question that does it helpful for me to think and pray to myself about 
Yeah. Yes. Yes, thank you. That's a good observation. I think a lot of many of the Psalms are exactly what you're talking about. That is, it's you talking through with God in association with God, in prayer to God, but also in talk to yourself about working through this. And I think that is a good thing to be doing. Um, yeah, I think, um, and sometimes the resolution is, what do I know about God? I know from the cross that God is good and great. I know this can be sorted. But I don't know when. Um, and I'm happy to leave this in the hands of God. But do not be afraid of talking to God about it. Is That's what the Psalms teach us. Don't be afraid of talking to God about it. And that's both an open prayer and a closed prayer. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Just a comment. I don't know if you've got any comments to make about it. One of the things in the Psalms, is, uh, particularly those dark Psalms, when, when the Psalmist calls down judgment yes. on his enemies. Yes. Thank you. I kind of struggle with that, bearing in mind that the New Testament can give. Yes, so what do you do with those psalms that are called the... Uh, the technical term for them is the imprecatory psalms. That is where you, you're saying to God, judge. Yeah. Um, I, I answer in two ways. Um, one is uh, we have to be careful with them um, because we, the dominant concern for us as God's Christian people is to forgive. But I do think that there is a place for Christians to be praying for the end of evil and evil people in the world. That is, I think it is right, and the people in the Second World War grappled with this one. That is, should you, they even grapple with, should we partner with God in getting rid of someone? Um, but it is right to pray for God to do away with evil. And therefore I think it's right to pray that God do away with evil people or turn their hearts in the reverse order. Turn their hearts or do away with them because of the evil that they are doing. I don't think that's a wrong thing to pray. Um, but be very careful. It's not enacted out of vengeance. It's enacted out of care for the world to be as God wants it to be. And that we know God doesn't want such people in his world or doesn't want them exercising their influence. That's right to pray that God removes them. But at the same time, you've got to balance that out with governing authorities and praying for our governing authorities, all those sorts of things. Because we Christians believe that all authority is given by God. Um, yeah, so it's a delicate balance. Yes? I we can speak a little bit about how... Uh, going through depression uh, has made you more like Christ. <laughs> well, I hope it has, yeah. Um, can you explain, can you talk a bit about how going through depression has made you more like Christ? All things work together. Yes. 
uh, it has formed my understanding of what it means to be Christian, perhaps more so than any other event in my life, except for my conversion and my marriage. Uh, because it's brought me um, to feel pain, to lose what for me was one of the most valuable things in my life, the potential of losing ministry. Um, and, you know, that was overwhelming. But in the midst of it, God was close, even though at times I felt he wasn't. And it shaped me to be a more, I think, a more compassionate man. I think it shaped my pastoral ministry. I understand people far more than I ever did before. And it's opened up doors into scripture I never saw before. And into the suffering of Christ, which I've never seen, which I had not seen. Um, so in that sense, it's, it's not a thing. I never take it to God and say, God, I, I wish you'd never given me this. I say to him, God, I thank you for the things that I've learned through this. And, so it, and it shaped me. I think I'm a better pastor as a result. I certainly am uh, more empathetic than I was before. Um, yeah. So, so uh, just in terms of my own understanding of myself and of God, it's enriched my experience of God. Yeah. And I think enriched my ministry. Yeah. Have and I? our marriage. And our marriage. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, I mean, Heather and I worked, walked through this together. And so it was incredibly rich in that. That is, we we shared it together. We were very open about it together. We suffered together. Um, and we grew together. So it wasn't... You know, I, I, I don't think that while it was a tough time, we don't look back on it negatively but positively as part of our growth together and individually. Yeah, now there's another question somewhere, I thought. Yes? Uh, you talk about yourself. Can you minister to the Christian? Like the one of the Christians. Yes, yes. So the question is, you talk about it in terms of ministering to Christians. And I've deliberately given it that emphasis because I think that's where we need to lift our game. But what about where the person's not a Christian? Yes. I think some of what I said remains the same because this is a problem in the natural world, if I can put it that way. Um, so some of the things that I've said are exactly the same. But I think as a Christian, you also want to say without being overwhelming to the person concerned that some of the that God is a God who understands this and you can go to him in this and he and his son has experienced uh, 
isolation, distance, all those sorts of things. And um, he knows what evil can do in the world and he knows what difficulty can do in the world. So, and that you can go to him. So you can direct a person toward God, but at the same time you can be Christian in the sense of caring for them, caring for the weak, caring for the disadvantaged, all those sorts of things, and helping them just normally. Okay, But you do want to say why that you think that in the end there is an answer to this. It may not be sorted out in this world, but it will be sorted out in the next. Okay. That is hard, I think. And you have to be very careful. You have to be very careful. I think you do want to be a friend to that person and rightly walk with them and so on. Heather? I was just going to say, when when I've been talking to non-Christians about this, I've done an incredibly passage. In fact, I was talking to one non-Christian girl who was going through it, and she she was rejecting Christianity because it's just too hard. And I said, before you go, let me just share with you why I'm a Christian. And I read Romans 18. And at the end of the, the, the last half the last, of Romans 8. Well, no, just before that, the spirit groaning. The, the, I can't remember the exact verses, but the last half. I read it to her and said, this is why I'm a Christian. And at the end she said, I want it. And became a Christian. So I actually think that if you show how God stands with you in the pain, um, Romans 8 is one passage I then it actually can have a very deep impact on their attitude to God. Because often they're going, why has God done this to me? And what you're saying is God is with you in this, and nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ. But you need to say, without Christ, you are separate. And, and that's what really she said, I just want it, I just want it. And became a Christian. So I think, I think there are other places to go as well, but that's one place that I've seen work. Thank you. Okay, any other questions or comments? What what time do we need to finish? Last question. Last question? Okay. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> good question. So the question was, when someone comes to me, you know, how do I find out whether the, the problem is, you said, sin, suffering, identity, whatever. I think you need to take a slow time to even come toward those conclusions. And maybe just whatever it is, work with them. But I think, I think give them hope through that as well. But it's a hard question, I think, because I'm no expert in this area. Uh, and um, I think my overall, my overall approach is not to deal with the underlying thing, but to deal with the issue on the surface and to try and help them work through that. Yeah, I think that's my best answer. Okay. How about I pray? 
Our Father, we, uh, we know from your word that we live in a world that is yet imperfect. And we know also that that world is uh, not the way it should be because of the workings of the evil one, but also because of the machinations and evil of humans. And Father, we know that this is a world not yet as it will be. So Father, but we do, we do pray for the people that we know and minister to, particularly in our churches. Now please help us to love even as we have been loved. Please help us to go to the disadvantaged and the hurting, even as you came to us in our sin, in your Son. And Father, we pray that we'd reflect who you are and what you're like in the way that we act toward each other. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.